Good morning. Good to see you in the house. Good to be with you in the house. And uh, how are you doing today? Everybody good? What a beautiful day. You know, I woke up this morning, I thought, what a gorgeous day in Austin, Texas. And then, I just, I, I don't know, just that compassion gear in me kicked in. I thought, you know, as beautiful as this day is, there are people today who wake up in Houston. And I just, man, my heart goes out to those people. Can you imagine the horror? Anyway, of course, I'm t- that's where I grew up. I've got a lot of people I love still there. We pray for them. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I think we've all heard before that relationships, relationships take work. You, you've heard that before. And the, the more significant the relationship, the more work you want to invest in it. If you've got a work relationship with somebody that you want to maintain over time, you invest in that relationship. If it's a close personal friend, maybe your your bestie in the whole world, you invest in that relationship. But if you're a parent, you invest in your parent-child relationship. If you're a spouse, you best be investing in that relationship with somebody help me preach. So relationships take work. And, And that is true, but I really think it's more accurate to say relationships take work that is based on attention. You have to be paying attention to a relationship for it to work. And the closest relationships we have are those people who reach out to us, that we reach out to just because, just because we want to connect with them, just because we wonder how they're doing. I've got a really good friend, David Hughes. You've heard him preach here before he lives in South Florida. David will call me, I'll call him two or three times a week, and I always love it when I get this voicemail from David. If you've heard him preach, you know that David has an incredible, incredible voice, that kind of deep, baso profundo voice. And I get a voicemail from David that sounds like this. He'll say, uh, hey, bud, just call in to check on you, see how you're doing. Nothing on the agenda, just wanted to see how you're doing. I hope y'all are doing well. Bye. That's a voicemail you want to return. That, that's one of those things because he just, he's just reaching out just because. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, relationships take work. You, you may be saying that to someone that you hope gets the message today. Relationships take work, but they take work based on attention. And it's not only relationships with other people. It's also our relationships with different parts of of our lives. You have a relationship like I have a relationship with food. How many of us know we have a relationship with food, with somebody? Okay, how, let me ask you another question on that subject just for curiosity's sake. How many of us in the room have a love-hate relationship with food? Can I see a show of hands? I don't, personally. I just love me some food. I love eating. I love celebrating. I love eating healthy food. I love eating unhealthy food. It, it, I just, it's, it's just there for the taking. Last teaching series, we just wrapped up the God of romance. We established the fact that all of us have a relationship with sex. It's a relationship that you have to kind of keep in check and make sure that it's focused on God and his priorities, his principles. But we all have to figure out how we're going to navigate that. And none of us have done it perfectly. We, we figured that out. But it's also true that we all have a relationship with money. You have a relationship with money. 
I have a relationship with money. And right now, I wish I could take a snapshot of your faces. Y'all are so excited. Some of you right now are thinking, can we go back and talk about sex, please? <laughs> but, but here's the thing that I've learned. Early in my ministry, when I was a small child, I, I used to get kind of anxious about preaching about money, about teaching about money, and I'd be like, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. And you know, How many of us know that, that people get funny when you talk about money? You know what I'm talking about? And, and I used to, and I, and I get that, and I never seek to offend anybody or step on toes, but here's what I've discovered throughout the years. This is actually a fun subject to talk about. When we talk about this in a biblical way, people get freed up. People walk out of here walking on clouds. They're like, I get it. I, I, can, I can get this thing under control rather than it controlling me. Now turn to your other neighbor, who's obviously your second choice, and tell that person, we're going to have some fun today. And I appreciate you saying that whether you believed it or not. We are going to have some fun today because as we begin this series, The God of Finance, we're going to see that God has some very, very specific principles to put into practice for our lives. But no matter where you come from financially, no matter where you are in this moment, I want you to pull out a little bit. Let's pull up to a 30,000-foot view, and let's remember this about God. First of all, God is love, period, hard stop. We, we know that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has been given for freedom. The Bible says it is for freedom that we have been set free and so when you understand that's who God is, that's God's goal, can you even imagine a scenario in which God wants us to be tense and tight, scared and fearful, anxious and worried about money? That's not his plan for our lives. And yet, and yet, isn't it true that we can all get tense and tight scared and fearful, anxious, and worried about money? I know I can. We're living in incredibly uncertain times. There's not even an agreement anymore on whether or not we're in a recession or what a recession is anymore. But let me just ask you this question, and you certainly don't have to play along at this point. How many of us in the last, let's say, month, 30 days, how many of us have felt some anxiety or uncertainty financially. Let me just see a show. If you feel like playing along, you can. Okay, this is fascinating. Fascinating how fast you put your hands down. Let me ask you to do me a favor. If you just raise your hand, raise it again and stick it up in the air. Now look around the room. Look around the room. You're in great company. You're surrounded by geniuses, all of whom, well, most of whom are geniuses, but most of whom are feeling the same thing you're feeling. We're experiencing the same thing. My prayer throughout this series, the God of finance, is that God will free us up, that, that God will do something in our lives that will forever shape our relationship with money, that it will alter the trajectory of our relationship to this thing called money. Now, some people say, well, I don't know why you would talk about money in the church. 
It's because God talks about money throughout the Bible. Jesus spoke more about money and our relationship to money than he did heaven or hell during his three-year earthly ministry. It's almost as if God knows that how we view this, how we treat this, how we manage this really represents where our hearts are, where our hearts and our minds and our lives are. Jesus, of course, said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That, that, there is, that ultimately, money is not about income and outgo. It's not about decimals and columns. It's a heart issue in the heart of every single person who draws breath. In Jesus' earthly ministry, in Luke chapter 16, he frames this subject in a really, really profound way that is kind of counterintuitive to the way we naturally think about money. If you've got your Bible, look in Luke chapter 16. In Luke 16, Jesus says the following words. If you are faithful in little things, then you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, then who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? You see, Jesus links this temporal, temporary, mundane money with the eternal, true riches of heaven. Jesus is saying that part of how he determines what we are ready for spiritually, what we're ready, where we're ready to go in relationship with him is revealed and determined by how we manage our money, by how we manage this stuff that has been entrusted to us. It's a fascinating reality. And you know, I think intuitively, like I know intuitively, that that is just the way it is. Many of you know, of course, that I'm married so far over my head, I can't even see straight. I'm married, Julie is incredible. Julie is brilliant, intelligent, Julie brings to my life a richness and a flavor that no one else brings to my life. Julie is an incredible, incredible partner in ministry. She is an incredible, incredible mother to adult children. She brings beauty. She brings joy. She brings passion to my life. And Julie is expensive. <laughs> if you were to look at my debit card, the vast majority of money that I spend on any other human being now that our children have mercifully left home is Julie. And I'm happy to do it. I am happy to make that investment. Now, let me say this. Julie is not a gift person. I've told you all before, if I showed up every night that I come home with jewels and flowers, she'd be like, oh, honey, thanks, I appreciate it. But if I'll clean up, after the dogs, if I'll empty the dishwasher without being asked, which by the way rarely happens, I'm just gonna tell you. That, that, does that, doesn't, it, doesn't everybody have some household chore that you just hate doing? Now I'll take out the trash like a machine. I'm, I'm on the trash thing. The dishwasher wears me out. I just don't like it. But sometimes, sometimes I will do it without being asked. When our children were little, if I would scoop them up and take them downstairs and, and 
bathe them and get them ready for bed and read them a story while Julie had some time to herself upstairs. Man, I'd come upstairs. I was set for days. That's how she receives love. That's how I communicate I love you to her. Our love language to God is trust. Our love language to God is obedience. When we choose to trust God more than we trust ourselves, when we are obedient to what he has said biblically, he sees, he knows, he feels our love. That's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Today, though, I'm going to do something that they tell you in seminary to never do. Today, I'm going to tell you the punchline of the whole series before we ever get to how to do it. Today is just why. What is it that God wants to do in our lives and through our lives? If you think about how we perceive our relationship with money as an investment, it's an investment of ourselves, it's an investment of our minds, it's an investment of our hearts. Today is just about the ROI on that investment. What is the return on that investment? What is it that God is generating? What is it that God is bringing to our lives as we adopt, as we collaborate with him on a God-honoring perspective on money? Last weekend at the Fearless Mom Conference, our good buddy Andy Andrews said something so profound about perspective. Andy said that perspective is the one thing you can change that changes everything without changing a single fact. Perspective changes everything without changing a single fact. So if we use that principle in this arena, if we change our perspective, if we adopt a God-honoring, a God-led perspective on money, it changes everything irrespective of our stuff. You, you may have just a, a little pile of stuff over here. You may have a, a medium-sized pile. Man, you may be one of those folks that God has blessed, and you have got a monster pile of stuff, of money, of possessions, of retirement, or whatever it might be. But your perspective on it, changing that and aligning that with God's perspective changes everything about how we handle this gift called finance. It changes everything. So five things I want to tell you about today that are the ROI, the return on this investment. The first thing that God brings to you, that God brings to me as a gift when we adopt this God-honoring investment is worship. Worship. Say worship. Now, <clears throat> Say it like you're awake. Worship. 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 Some of you are thinking, whoa, 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 I thought worship is something we do. We bring our worship to God. We were just singing, and, and that's true. But have you ever noticed that when you worship God, it feeds your soul? That there's something inside of us that needs to worship God. I need that. You need that. There's something that happens when we sing. When I sit down here and I worship with you on the weekend in our worship services, there is something that happens in that moment that'll never happen at a Charlie Crockett concert. It'll never happen at a Harry Styles concert, I would assume. I don't know. I've never been. But my point is, worship feeds our souls. We need worship. 
Look at what the Bible says in Psalm chapter 50. This is God speaking through the writer of Psalms. He says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. Now, clearly, most of us don't have any bulls or goats, but we all have something. He says, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. God says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. When we worship God, that feeds our soul. Even when we worship God in how we manage our money. If you begin to see money as a vehicle for worship, it changes everything. When you start to see, this is not about just acquiring more. This is not about a next toy. This is not about that raise. This is not about a new house. This is about worshiping God. Then all of a sudden, the blinders come off and you're like, whoa. I, okay, God, show me how this decision draws me closer to you. Show me how this decision glorifies and honors you like Psalm chapter 50. God is being there's a little bit of comedic relief in this particular passage. God's saying, I don't need your stuff. I don't need you to tithe. I don't need you to make. God says, you need to tithe. You need to worship me with your wealth. Now, I know some, somebody probably is thinking right now, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not wealthy. I'm not wealthy. Listen. By virtue of the fact that you live in this country and live anywhere at or near the poverty line puts you in the 98th percentile of people on the planet. Whether or not you worship God with your wealth is not a function of how much or how little you have. It's a function of where your heart is. That is worship. Worshiping God and saying, God, where I am right now is where you have me. That's why God says what he says in Malachi chapter three about the tithe. The tithe is something that God calls us to for our good and his glory. Look at what it says. Malachi chapter three, verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So this is God speaking, the Lord of heaven's armies. He says, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Now, I want you to notice that's Malachi chapter three, but in Matthew 23, 23, Jesus himself endorsed the tithe. Every now and then I've had would-be theologians who want to argue this. Like, well, now Malachi three, you realize is in the Old Testament. So that's under the law. We're under the grace and I, and I do understand the distinction. I really, really do. But Jesus said in Matthew 23, he said, listen, he goes, y'all are so, he's talking to the Pharisees, he goes, you're so legalistic about the tithe that you measure out the grains of your seasonings, your, your salt, your cumin, your dill. You measure those things out down to the final grain, but you neglect the greater issues of the law like love and mercy and justice and compassion. Jesus said, you should 
tithe, but also do these other things as well. So Jesus endorsed the tithe. The tithe is an expression of worship. It's 10%. If you make $100 this year, 10% goes to the church where you worship. If you're not a Christian, you are off the hook. If you're not a follower of Christ, then you just got a 10% bump. But for those of us who go by the name of Christian, we bring the whole tithe. Now, if you've never done a tithe, if, you, if you've never done that and, and it's not a part of your spiritual arsenal yet, I get it. I do understand. You, you look at that and you go, 10%? That, whoo, 10%? I'm just telling you. Trust God. He says, bring the whole tithe. Test me in this as an expression of worship. Bring the tithe. It's, it's worshipful. And there is something that always, say always, Something that always happens when we worship. When I remember how great God is, how huge, how excellent, how loving, how amazing God is, it always brings me to the second return on this investment, and that's peace. When you worship, there is peace to be had in the presence of God. Peace. When you, when you really and truly communicate to God, this is why I love you, this is what I think about you, this is why I know you are God and I am not, it really brings perspective to every part of life. And it clarifies things. When we worship God, we're saying, you're God and I'm not. That, that's a statement of reality. That, you could argue, is the first step to mental health to acknowledge that he is God and I am not. That's reality. But when that happens, then we begin to experience the peace that passes all understanding, the peace that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. This, this idea of peace becomes so real. The 23rd Psalm is one of the most quoted passages in the entire Bible. If you've ever been to a graveside service at a funeral. You've probably heard the 23rd Psalm. I want to read just the first verse of Psalm 23. Look at what it says. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. So he is the director. I will worship him as God. He is my shepherd. I shall not want. Think about that for a second. I'm curious right now, and again, you don't have to play along with this, but I think it's interesting. How many of us right now have something in a shopping cart somewhere on the internet that we're waiting to close the sale on? Let me just see. I do. I do right now. So we, we have wants. That's part of the human condition. But when we understand that God is my shepherd, I shall not want, that means that everything I have right now is enough. I, I have the Lord as my shepherd. He is enough. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong with planning, strategizing, the entrepreneurial spirit. That, that can be a really healthy, God-honoring thing or not. But being at peace right here, right now. God is my shepherd. I shall not 
want. I shall. That's that, that peace. When you understand that God holds the universe in his hand, he keeps the world spinning. Recession, no recession. Bull market, bear market, up and then down. Dividends and yields, stocks and bonds. Fine. He's still God. He's still God, and I can, oh, I can, I can take a deep breath in that for a second. I, I, can, I can let that wash over me. Out of my worship comes peace. The third return on the investment is generosity. Generosity is something that God puts in us for us. And I told you some of these were counterintuitive. Some of you are thinking, whoa, 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 generosity? Preacher boy, that's what I give to other people. Let me ask you a question. Think of someone in your life, and I'm dead serious about this. Think of somebody that you know who is stingy. Let's see. Everybody, if, if, once you get somebody in mind who is stingy, raise your hand. Raise your hand once you have somebody in mind who is stingy. If you're sitting next to that person, raise your hand. I'm just kidding. Don't, don't raise your hand on that one. Here's what I know about the stingy person in the frontal lobe of your brain right now. They're miserable. What a sad, sad way to live. And I mean that sincerely. That's no judgment attached to that. I just know stingy people are miserable. That's why the word miserable comes from the same word that gives us miser. Miser, you are miserable if you're stingy. Man, people who are generous, people, the, 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 my, my best friends, the people I love to go out to eat with, man, we're, they're the people that I fight with over paying the bill. I, I get there early so I can give it to the hostess. Ha, 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 gotcha. Those, those are my friends. The people who are the slow pay artists, they've got those little, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex arms. Here, let me get that. Those people know. I'm sorry. But generous people, generous people, truly generous, particularly when they are generous out of their worship of God and who he is and trying to imitate the character of God, those are the most joyful, happiest people I've ever been around in my life. They love it. They don't want you to know what they gave. They don't want you to know that they gave. They just, or that they picked up your meal. They're the ones who just they, just, they just do it. They're joyful. Look at what the Bible says, Proverbs, the book of wisdom. It says, give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Here's the principle. Think about the generous people you know in your life, okay? That's, that's a little more fun, isn't it? The generous people that you know. Aren't they joyful? Here's what I've found about the generous people that I know in my life, that I strive to be like. I'm trying to imitate. I'm trying to emulate. They rarely do without. Now, they may have setbacks. They, they can face calamity like all of us can. None of us is immune to that. But they never do without. God somehow 
make sure that all of their needs are met. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Generosity is a gift you give yourself. And some of us are more prone to generosity than others. Some of us are more prone to being frugal. Frugal's good. That's fine. But don't let it be tight. You don't want to, you know, like squeak when you walk. You want to be frugal and generous. Sometimes we're frugal so that we can be generous. That generosity generates joy. That generosity is contagious. It's infectious. It's something that people want to be around, and God promises he'll take care of those who are generous. God loves a cheerful giver. The fourth ROI is preparation. Preparation. When we invest in a God-honoring perspective on money, we are prepared. We are ready when the bottom falls out of the economy. Proverbs 21.20, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. Fools spend whatever they get. Tell your neighbor with a smile on your face and love in your heart, make sure you check your heart before you do this, but I want you to do this sincerely. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, don't be no fool. Paycheck to paycheck is foolish. It's foolish. The wise store up and save for emergencies. The wise store up and save for the roof that will eventually fail. The car air conditioner that will go out absolutely in July or August in Texas. When I was in high school, my first car was a 1975 Toyota Celica. Don't be jealous. And I was driving this 75 Celica, and I was 16, 16 and a half years old, and I was driving it. I started to hear a little squeak. A little squeak, squeak. And I noticed it was when I'd pull up to a stop sign or a traffic light. And over time, the squeak got just a little bit louder. It's kind of like a mouse squeak. Kept driving, kept, I didn't know what it was. This was my first vehicle, my first car. I, wasn't riding around with my mom or my dad to tell me what it was. I was just driving it by myself. And after a while, the squeak got a little louder. And, and kind of like, like that's, that's kind of like a rat squeak. It's no longer a mouse squeak. That's a rat squeak. And then the squeak turned into a little bit of a growl. It was kind of like a squeak. And I was like, that sounds like a small dog. And then the, the growl became a grind. And, and I would hear this, like, this horrible metal-on-metal metal sound. And then I said, you know what? I should go get that looked at. It happens when I stop, so it must have something to do with the wheels. I went in and had the guy look at the wheels and the brakes, and he came out. Have you ever had somebody in, in any arena, whether it's cars or, or whatever, go, Man, didn't you know you should have brought that in? I was like, if I'd have known, I'd have brought it in, bro. He goes, man, your brakes are shot. You, you've worn the brakes all the way down, and now that caliper is grabbed. You, we we got we to replace the discs and the rotors on your car. 
That was 40 years ago, and I still remember the bill. I still remember the amount. You know why I remember it? Because I didn't have it. I had to call my mom. My mom hadn't been putting money away because her son was stupid and didn't know to take the brakes in to get changed. She goes, well, she goes, tell him to change it. We'll figure it out. $1,300. I have never forgotten that feeling. I had to have the money to be able to drive. If you live in Houston, you have to drive. My mom worked. Wise people save money. Wise people put it aside. You don't, this is going to be a radical thought. Some of you are going to want to write this down. You do not have to spend everything that comes in. You don't. But like I said, some of us are, are a little more inclined to frugality. Others of us are more inclined to spending. How many spenders do we have in the room? If you're a spender, that's great. Now listen, that's not good or bad, necessarily. That's a personality thing. Some of us are just wired up that way. And in God's incredible sense of humor, he usually puts spenders together with savers in marriage. <laughs> that's a whole other series. But preparation. Preparation means that we have stored things away. We have not spent whatever we've gotten. And then the fifth one is going to shock some of you. Some of you, are going to, it's going to knock you out of your seat. The fifth return on investment is enjoyment. Enjoyment. Just enjoying what you have, being content with what you have right now. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon writes this. He says, even so, I have noticed one thing at least that is good. It is good for people to eat, to drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life that God has given them, and to accept their lot in life. And it is a good thing to receive wealth from God and the good health to enjoy it, to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift from God. Enjoyment, to enjoy what you have right now. Here's what's interesting about how we respond to financial stress. Men tend to see financial stress and anxiety as an indictment. Men see financial stress as an indictment. We have not done something we should have done. That's a broad generalization, but it holds true. Which means if Julie ever <clears throat> comments or were to, I don't mean just complain, but to but to, to be negative about our financial status, that's an indictment of me is how I read that initially. Now, it's not, but that's how I receive it. That's how I read it. Because one of the things that men naturally do is we take responsibility and ownership for our spouse's happiness. Like, if she's happy, <laughs> I did that. But if she's unhappy, I did that. Women, on the other hand, typically take financial stress and anxiety as a threat. They feel threatened by that. They feel vulnerable by that. And, and as such, they respond accordingly. But when we understand that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I will be content right here, right now. Now, 
Our financial situation may mean that we need to make a plan to get healthier, to get stronger, but I'm gonna enjoy what God has entrusted to me right here, right now. Years ago, I heard a story about a gentleman who was taken to a meeting in Washington, D.C. It was a, a meeting at a government level, and the gentleman who was taking this guy picked him up in his private jet, his PJ, kind of, you know, the ultimate status symbol. And they flew to Washington and flew back home on a Gulfstream G4. Now, if you're not familiar, the way that this was explained to me, a G4 is a rocket ship with leather seats. Flew to Washington, flew home, and as they were taxiing toward the hangar where he stored his private jet, he looked out the window, and across the tarmac was a G6. That's bigger and better. And he goes, you see that G6 right there? That's what I got my eyes on. That's what's next. Now, I don't know this guy's financial status or standing. A G6, he might have found the money for that in the cushions of his couch. I don't know. But here's the point. When is enough enough? When is enough enough? If, if you can buy a G6 and honor and glorify God, knock yourself out. I'll give you my number after the service. If, if for you, honoring and worshiping God means sitting down and, and being deliberate and intentional about a budget, this is what's coming in, this is what's going out, we're gonna make sure that A is greater than B, that's fine. But it is God's will for you and for me to experience Peace, a peace that passes all understanding. I want to bring the list back up on the screen for just a second. I want to bring this list back up, and I want to ask every one of you to take out your phone and take a picture of this list. Right now, just go ahead. You can take out your phone in church. I'd appreciate if you not make a call. But take your phone out and take a picture of this list, and if I'm standing in your way, I'm going to move in just a second. Because here's... The application. It's one thing to take in the information. Okay, there's worship. Okay. But the application of the information is so much more important. So if I'm in your way, I'm sorry. These five things. Here's the application. Pray over each one of them each day of this week coming up. Starting tomorrow, pray God, I worship you as my provider. I realize that you own the cattle on a thousand hills, and by the way, the hills themselves upon which they graze. But I'm gonna worship you as my provider. You, you are the one who's provided for me. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, Mac, there's only five up there. We've got seven days till next Sunday. You're right. Here's what I want you to do. Saturday and Sunday, just pray a prayer of surrender. God, I surrender my will to your will financially. Based on the fact that you are my provider, based on the fact that you are my shepherd and I shall not want, that you have provided everything that I need for right now. Because if we don't really believe that, if we don't really live like we believe that, then we're saying that God made a mistake. 
that God hasn't come through, that he hasn't provided enough for me. And nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. I know that money is a mundane subject. It's mundane in that it's, it's every day. But may we never forget that it's an opportunity to connect with our God, the perfect shepherd. It's an opportunity to recognize him as our provider, to recognize him as our guide. To experience a return on an investment, the investment of ourselves, the investment of our hearts and our minds. An investment that yields benefits far beyond anything financial. It's an opportunity to connect with the God who loved us enough to create us and to connect with us personally through his son, Jesus. It is always about Jesus. If you're here today and you've never made that connection with Christ personally, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. The opportunity to step into a relationship with Christ personally, definitively. If that's you today, then we invite you just to pray something like this. Just silently talk to God and say, Lord, I need you. I choose to believe that you died on the cross, Jesus, for me so that I could be forgiven, cleansed and washed and made new because of you. Lord, I confess my sin to you. All of it. so that I might claim and receive your forgiveness and your grace, all of it. And in exchange for your life, Lord, I will give you mine and I will follow you from this moment forward. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment if that was your prayer would you just raise your hand just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment understanding that as a church we celebrate this moment with you 
we want to help with the moments that follow. And in just a minute, we'll explain kind of how that happens. But right now, as our heads are bowed, would you just, as your hand is in the air, know that we love you and we want to come alongside you and help. And our family tradition is, as you put your hands down, we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.